You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 6 this morning, let's begin at verse number 1 this morning. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Bailey of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir tree, even of harps and of psalteries, and on timbrels, and on cornets, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of that place Perez Uzzah unto this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. This is the word of the Lord. And may we this morning see God for who he is and have an eternal perspective today. I wonder this morning if you've ever experienced an event that when it happened you made your way through it and then afterwards, the gravity of that event sort of just overwhelmed you, and it shook you to your core. Several years ago, I had some health issues going on and, and wasn't really sure what was happening, but, but concerned about them. And so made some appointments and, and had to have a couple tests done, and one of the tests took me out to Wallaceburg. And so we get there, Kim drives me out there, and you know this in, in any medical field, um, there is no human dignity at all, right? You have those cute little robes that if you put on backwards, you're really in trouble, right? <laughs> There's a breeze often. And so the doctor comes in, he talks to me, explains the procedure, and then I go under the, the anesthesia, and then I'm sort of out. And after coming out of that surgery, they rolled me out, and believe it or not, I was loud and obnoxious. I think it was the anesthesia. And as I'm going, I'm, I'm happy. I'm saying some, I, I thought were funny things about a parade 
This is a great day for a parade. And then I saw my wife in the waiting area, and I said, hey, Kim. And I said something else about a parade. Um, and people looked at her and said, that one's yours. She said, yeah, that one's mine. <laughs> one's mine. I don't know all that I said, but I'm sure it was humorous. And then you sit there, and afterwards, I could not drive home, so we got in the car, and I sat there. And as we drove away, I just wept. I mean, I think I wept from Wallaceburg to Chatham. And the gravity of maybe what was going on in my life and the unknown and waiting for tests somewhat overwhelmed me. In this story this morning, I want you to see that David comes in contact with an event in his life that at, at first glance, he, he's really upset. But, but as he sees the gravity of the event, it changes him. And it changes him in a very profound way. And so let's look this morning at the story, Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, again at verse number 1. I want you to see first David's desire, David's desire. In verses 1 and 2, we find that David wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Now our young people are here this morning, we're so glad to see all of you. I have a question for you, when I say, David wanted the ark, what do you think of when I say the ark? Any ideas? Does anybody know about an ark in the Bible? What, Jay? Noah's ark, right? We say the ark and we just think of Noah's ark. And you think, that's weird. David wants and desires Noah's ark, a really big boat. Okay, This is not the ark that David desired. What he's talking about here is another ark we find in the Bible, the ark of the covenant. It's completely different. A matter of fact, the ark of the covenant is what David desired. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen this before, or I had a chance to visualize the size of the ark. But I was amazed as I took the measurements of the ark, which are three and three quarters by two and a half by two and a half. It's a box. It's not a boat, it's a box. And the box, if you can imagine, is the size, almost perfectly, of the front of our pulpit. From about here to the bottom is about roughly four, and this down to here, and then two and a half, two and a quarter back, is about the size of the ark which really impressed me. I never knew it was that size. It is a small box. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? Why would David want a small box? Well, it just wasn't a box made of wood. It was covered with gold inside and out. Along the top of the ark was a crown-like structure made of gold all the way around. It had four rings, two on each side, which golden staves or poles would go through. And the ark had a lid. And the lid was functional, right? It opened and it was made of gold as well. The lid was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Um, we'll talk more about that mercy seat, but you, you probably already understand that has much to do with Israel's worship of God and forgiveness and redemption. Uh, and inside that box, we find there were two tablets. They were not Macs or Samsungs. They were tablets of stones. The Ten Commandments were inside that box, along with Aaron's rod and a pot of manna, that bread, that what is it from heaven, was inside this box. And so this is what David desired. And this box, this ark, was central to Israel's worship. And so David has a desire to bring this object, which is central to their worship, back to Jerusalem. And there's a meaning for that. Jerusalem now is the political center of a united kingdom of Israel. 
And now he wants it by bringing the ark back to Jerusalem to be the spiritual or religious center as well. Now, for us to understand the significance of all that's happening this morning, it would be good to understand what this ark, this golden box with a mercy seat, represents for all of Israel. First, the, the ark represents God's rulership. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, about verse 2, David describes the ark of the covenant and says, the ark is God's footstool. And, and the picture he paints for us is God on his throne and the ark is his footstool. And the truth is, there was something about the ark for Israel that represented the rulership of God, that he was their king, he was their, their majesty. Uh, the truth is, the ark did lead them at a time and would go out before them in certain battles. So it represented rulership. The ark also represented reconciliation, the mercy seat. If you know anything about Israel's history, the tabernacle, the instruments of the tabernacle, the mercy seat is where the high priest, once a year, would go in behind the veil, the holiest of holies. They would shed the blood of an innocent lamb and sprinkle it upon the seats. It was an act of pardoning the people. It covered their sin. And so it speaks of reconciliation, a God that pardons his people. You should let that thought roll around in your head for a little bit. The God of heaven is a God who pardons his people. This was the ark. And then the ark represented, in a real way, um, God's revelation. Inside the ark were the tables of stone that, that God, by his own hand, wrote and gave to Moses his law. This is what I want my people to know. And there were times when Moses would go before the ark in Exodus chapter 25, and God's voice would thunder from that ark and give Moses revelation. And so this ark represents God's actual presence among his people. That the majestic, pardoning, speaking God was in the midst of his people. And David's desire is not just for some box, but ultimately David's desire is for God's presence among his people. And it's, it's, it's interesting to me anyways, the, the chapter before, chapter 5, there's a crisis. The Philistines come down and they cry out to God in their crisis. And he shows up. But in chapter 6, there is not a crisis. David just understands that what he needs most of all in his life is not just when there's a crisis to call out to God and say, God, I'm in trouble now. The bottom has fallen out, which we often do. It's interesting, we have no time for God except when we're in trouble. Oh, the health problem, the finances, the relationship. Now I'll be serious about God. We all do it. And in chapter 6, it's not a crisis now that David's concerned with. He understands that to be sustained in his daily life, he needs the presence of God here and now. In chapter 5, it was, who's against us? The Philistines. In chapter 6, it's, who's for us? And so, David's desire was for God's presence in the midst of his people, that God would be here in a real way. And we could spend lots of time on that this morning. That we as God's people, our greatest desire, would have him, the God of heaven, manifest himself in a real way in the midst of his people. But that's David's desire. Secondly, I want you to see David's delight, verses 3 through 5. 
his delight. When you read this portion of Scripture, this is a joyous, joyous celebration. It is exuberant. Um, there are, um, it, it's almost as if this is sort of a, like a, a party or a concert kind of environment. 30,000 troops have come to move this ark, and the people are ecstatic. Uh, and, and in itself, in, in that itself, I don't know if you've ever seen a military uh, installation where you've seen a, a squadron or a brigade, but there's something awe-inspiring. Could you, 30,000 men, and they're all in their dress blues, or their dress greens, or if they're Scottish, they're just in their dresses. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, kilts are pretty cool. All right, it'd be terrifying if you actually see an army of men in dresses running at you shouting freedom. That would be scary, all right? But it's an awesome thing, an awesome thing. There are 30,000 of them, and they are delighting in the presence of the Lord. The band is playing. Um, it is loud. It's religious. Now, I know some of our Baptist and Presbyterian and brethren, believers, this is a little disconcerting to you that the idea that here they are rejoicing over the Lord, and they are just I mean, they're partying? They're excited about the things of God. I mean, mean, if you can envision 30,000 troops of people shouting, cheering, praising the fact that God is again in their midst. There he's in the midst of them. Exuberant praise. Let me just say something on this point before we move on. This is a quote by W.G. Blakey, and here's what he says. In regard to our delight and our enthusiasm in Christianity today, there are doubtless times to be calm and times to be enthusiastic. But can it be right to give all of our coldness to Christ and all of our enthusiasm to the world? You hear what said? Christian people about the delight of God, and the fact is we are cold about the things of God, but we are thrilled about the enthusiasm in the world. Something's not right there. Hey, if I can get excited about the Blue Jays finally getting into the pennant race there, yeah, yeah, whatever. Okay. Um, Why can't I get excited about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Christian, does the presence of God and who he is ever move you? I mean, ever really grab a hold of you and move you? And I'm sure it's different for everybody. Maybe for you it moves you to silence, to be somber, and to really think. Maybe it's for tears. Maybe it's for joy. Maybe you're the crazy one and you do some of these things, right? But, but there should be something when we think about, and this is not crazy, by the way. Okay, this is okay. Don't get nervous about that. It's okay. There should be something within us as we think about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done, that God stepped into our world, he took upon him the form of man, he died and bled on a cross for you and for me, for our sins. The wrath of God was put on his head, and he stepped in and he rescued me. Listen to me, there should be something within you that says, praise the Lord, glory to God, God, thank you for saving me. And these folks were delighted about the fact that God was in their presence. Amen? Okay, good. So make sure you're still with me and that you're delighted to be here because God is here, right? So we see David's desire, David's delight. 
And then I want you to see disaster. Disaster. Verses 6 and 7 of the text tell us what happened. The oxen stumble. The ark totters. And Uzzah, walking next to it, puts his hand out just to steady this box. And in an instant, he's dead. He's, he's dead. You talk about the day the music died? <laughs> That's the day the music died. It, it, was, it was dead. And here are 30,000 troops. Here are men and women praising God. All the instruments are going. People are shouting and praising. And they look over and in an instant, Uzzah is by the ark and he is dead. You talk about killing the vibe. There is no vibe. There is no heartbeat. He is gone. Somebody call 911. The whole atmosphere has changed from this joyous celebration of God to now a guy who touched a box and he's dead. Look at now David's displeasure, verse number 8. David was displeased. It's an interesting word. It means to glow or grow warm, to blaze up, to burn. It means to be angry. Angry. Now, I know in a church this size with people who have lots of background in the stories of the Bible, some of you are very spiritual this morning, and and already in this story you're saying, yeah, Uzzah died, he deserved it, God was right, let's move on. Right? And you're, you're far more spiritual than most of us. But can I say something to you? It doesn't tell us who David is angry at, but Uzzah is dead. There's a sense here that David is angry with what God just did. This was for you, your party, and now you kill a guy and ruin everything. Can we be honest this morning? If I were to read this for the first time, and maybe I'll show you how, how sinful and wicked I am, but reading this for the first time, just reading that story, when I come to David being displeased, I'm with them. It's like, I am angry. What in the world? Why so severe? Anybody with me on that? Okay, good. A bunch of ungodly people as well. Good. Right? I mean, I've read that story thinking, it's a box. He didn't want it to fall. He was really thinking about the honor of that, that ark. And yet, he is killed. And then in verse number 9, I want you to see something. This is David's anger at the Lord. And verse number 9, And David was afraid of the Lord that day. Afraid after this. Years ago, when we, before we had the new building here, there was just, the, the auditorium was just a long hallway with no windows. It was, it was dreary, it was terrible. And it was just a long box. And we, we, had, we had Sunday school at 10 o'clock here, and the pulpit would be down on the floor, and people would come in. And on one Sunday years ago, uh, Pastor Dan was teaching on Islam, right in the front row here. And, and my family and I, we were sitting, you know how you know people, where people are at in churches where they sit? You guys are in the wrong spot. You guys should be up here, Shelvin. All right? Um, you must have been late. But, but we would sit right over here, and it was me, Kim, 
Uh, this is how long ago it was. Our son AJ was with us, and then Gregory David, and I think my father-in-law and mother-in-law were either in front of us or behind us. But, so Dan is speaking and teaching on Islam, and during this time, there was some commotion going back on in the back wall there, and I didn't know what it was, and I didn't know that while he was teaching, a guy in the back, a big guy in the back, was all bent out of shape, and he was talking with Dan from back there and swearing at Dan, actually. And that's not unusual. A lot of people do that. But for a Sunday, <laughs> it was like... And so he's doing that. I, I didn't think anything of it. And then when he said amen, you remember this? Yeah. He said amen. The guy in the back stood up and started cursing out loud. Sunday morning, right? It was 1045. He starts cursing, and he's making a beeline to the front. A beeline. So instinctively, I got out of my seat, came around in front of Dan, was just happy. He was smiling. He had no idea what was going on, right? <laughs> he just smiled. I think he did know what was going on. Doesn't move. I go to the front. Behind me is my son, AJ, and it wasn't anything noble. He just always liked to be in a fight. There wasn't anything. He, I'm telling you the truth. It wasn't like, I'm going to protect and defend. like, I want to hit somebody, right? <laughs> Sunday morning. This is our spirit. My father-in-law followed. There's like three of us came to the front. I think Greg was just had his head uh, down in his lap, his hands covering his ear. Um, that's how he and his mother deal with problems. It's, just, it's true. It's, it's absolutely true. Nothing wrong with that. It's, it's okay. But that's what they were doing. And he comes up, and, and he's swearing. And, I mean, the language was, it just flowed. And he was incensed. He was incensed. I don't know how many people were there for that morning, but it was crazy. And so we got in front of him, we walked him toward the back, and we were saying, that's enough, you've got to get out of here, it's time to leave. And I'll never forget what he said before he left. I said something to him, he said, um, I just forgot it. Um, <laughs> he said, I beg your pardon, is what he said. I beg your pardon. And he, he left and stormed out of here. This was Sunday morning. Visitors were coming to church. Right? We just finished Sunday school. This guy swearing, storming out of the building. And back in that time, we had a, just a platform here, and I'd sit up here because we do welcome songs and announcements. And I sat on the chair. I'm not kidding you. I, I didn't think anything of it. But when I sat on the chair, I was sitting there. I can't sit down because this thing's in my pocket, I guess. But I was, I was sitting down. And um, then all of a sudden, it just dawned on me what just took place on a Sunday morning in our church. And to couple that with earlier that year, my sister-in-law down in, in her church in, in St. Louis area, actually Illinois, her pastor was shot on a Sunday morning in the service. And so I'm sitting there. And all of a sudden, it sort of just overwhelms me what just took place. And I see my hands going, eh, right? The gravity, and nothing did happen. We thank God that nothing did happen. Um, he's not been here since, thank God for that. Um, but the gravity of that event sort of just, it shook me a bit. And here's David, and you've got to be there, right? He is praising, worshiping God. And now in a moment, he's angry. What, what are you doing? And then he sort of sits back. And he sees Uzzah there, the ark there, silence, and now he's afraid of God. I mean, he's terrified. So let's look at the directives this morning. What, what does David learn from this story about God and his character, and, and what do we learn now this morning from the event? This might be the Captain Obvious first point, all right? And, and I think you're going to say, yeah, of course, but you need to listen to this. The first thing that David learned about this event and what we need to learn about this event is this. That the God of heaven is a God who should be feared. Listen to me. The God of heaven is a God who should be feared. Feared. 
if you were writing a book about a deity and you wanted to win friends and influence people and have them like the God you're writing about, you would not put this story in there. You wouldn't. But the story's there. And it's there for a reason. And the reason for David and the reason for us this morning is to remind us that the God of heaven is not a cuddly, fuzzy plaything. He is the God of the universe. And again, I think this is instructive. He calls the spot there where Uzzah died. He calls it um, Perez Uzzah. It means God broke forth on Uzzah in chapter 6. Do you know David used that same terminology back in chapter 5 when the Philistines came? And, and they came and they attacked and he called that Baal Perazim. It's the same root word that God broke out on the Philistines. God broke out on um, Uzzah. And the point is that this God isn't toyed with. He will break forth on the Philistines. He will break forth on his people. And we live in a society that, that we have, we've brought God down to a point that he's some fuzzy plaything and not the God of heaven. God is to be feared. Now listen to me. I know it's chic in our world today to say, well, when it says fear the Lord, it means to have reverential respect for him that you don't want to displease him. Yes, there's truth to that. But to fear the Lord also means to be afraid of the Lord. And there is health in that. There is hope for us in that. That is the proper relationship. Now, I know this morning already, I'm going to be misunderstood on this point, but I want you to listen to me. Because I know the analogy I'm about to use will break down a little bit. But we understand, I think, the importance of fear in our own life, real fear. We have a world today where parents today are, are reading the same stupid book about parenting. And the book goes something like this. Be a permissive parent. You're their buddy, you're their friend. If they're doing something wrong, don't tell them no. Don't stop them. Change the environment. It's the environment's fault. It's the kid's fault. The reason he bit that kid's ear off is because that kid put his ear in his mouth. Do you think I'm exaggerating? I'm not. Maybe not the ear part, but I mean... And so it's like, don't rock the boat. Don't. We want our kids to be our buddies. They should never be afraid of us. Can I tell you something? We are raising kids today who are unruly, who have no fear of any authority whatsoever. How in the world will they ever fear civil authority and God's authority? If they don't even fear their parents who look at them like they're stupid at five years old. Can I tell you something? When I was growing up, I had a fear of my father. I mean, it wasn't, will I disappoint you, Dad? It was, I'm afraid of you. Now listen, I know the analogy breaks down, but let me tell you something. My dad growing up, he was a Caucasian. If you didn't realize that, I'm, he was Caucasian. As a young man, 18, 19, 17, 18, 19, he was in a Mexican gang in Cleveland. The only white guy in a Mexican gang in Cleveland. My dad, he was a scary man. Even at 66 today, I'm afraid of him. When he was 17, he was working at a McDonald's, and... Um, his boss, who was 30, the manager, kicked my dad in the rear end at 17 and said he was lazy. He said, you're lazy or something. Now, my dad has never been lazy. My dad at 66 can still work circles around 20 and 30-year-olds today, and I'm not exaggerating. Not exaggerating. 
And my dad at 17 turned around and knocked that man out. Now, I'm, I, again, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not condoning that behavior. I'm just telling you something. He was a scary man. Um, in the 80s, there was a boxer named Roberto Duran. If you guys were boxer, boxing people, you remember Roberto Duran. He used to fight Sugar Ray Leonard. They called him the man with the hands of stone. My dad's hands were like stone. They still are. They, they still are. They're, and at 15 years old, believe it or not, I could be punky. I could be really punky. It's just a baby. We know what babies do. Don't worry about it. They're okay. It's sweet. That's right. And so, at 15, can I tell you something? I was afraid of my dad. And again, it's not that he would kill me, but I thought he would. And can I tell you something? In that fear, it helped me and it kept me from real danger in my life. There were things I did not do, I was terrified to do, because I thought my dad would kill me. Right? We all grew up like that, right? They weren't, they didn't care about where they smacked you. And again, I'm not condoning this. I'm just telling you, that fear in my life saved me from grief. And what has happened in Christianity today is we have brought God down to a place where he's just like us. And David, the lesson is, this God is not like you. And this God is not like us. And granted, can I tell you something? He is perfect in love and perfect in mercy and perfect in kindness and long-suffering, but he's also perfect in righteousness, holiness, justice, and wrath. And when we bring him down to a point where he's a plaything, where he's my homeboy, where he's the guy upstairs, where he's just hoping and praying that I like his picture on Facebook so I can be blessed, which, by the way, he doesn't care about. Did you understand that? Jesus is pleading, please like me. No, he's not. He's not pleading with anyone. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we as God's people must understand, this God is a God who should be feared. He should be feared. Secondly, this is a God who is not fickle. You say, wait a minute, he just killed the guy for touching a box. What? You say he's not fickle or capricious. He just killed that guy for touching a box. This is why it's very important that you and I read the whole Bible. Some of you think, yeah, the guy of the Old Testament, he just liked killing people. No, he didn't. The book of Numbers, chapter 4, speaks all about this. And, and this is God giving instruction to the sons of Aaron on the holy things in the tabernacle. And we won't read it all, but if you jump down to verse number 15 on this, The middle of the verse tells us, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. I wonder what that means in original Hebrew. Do you have an idea what that might mean? It means don't touch it or you will die. And then watch this. It's important. Verse number 19. But thus do unto them that they may live. Can I tell you something? This God is not fickle. This God, even in his warnings, they are acts of kindness. He's telling them, I am holy, you are not. I am separate from you, you are not me. I have commanded you something, you are to obey it, and don't touch it. I want you to live. And just that you know this morning, if you're thinking, man, poor David and poor Uzzah and poor Ohio, they didn't, they didn't know. 
And you better check out 2 Samuel 6, the next time they move this thing, guess how they move it? They move it on their shoulders with poles in it. They knew. And I want you to know something this morning. This God of heaven is to be feared, and he is not fickle. In his warnings, there is kindness. We see this throughout all the scripture. A verse in my life lately that I've been just going over and over again, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, and uh, powerful. Listen to this. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, this is Jehovah, Yahweh, this is the God of heaven and earth. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn you, turn you from your evil ways, for why will you die? And God, throughout all of Scripture, says to everybody, I am God, and in my kindness, warning after warning after warning, why will you die? I have no death, no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. It's, it doesn't please me. I want them to repent. I want them to turn to me. And my friend, listen to me. If you're here this morning, you know that in your own heart and mind, God is warning you. It's called your conscience. All of us want justice. All of us. We got robbed a couple years ago, three years ago now. We went to the courthouse on Friday, and the courthouse was filled with everybody that this one family ripped off. Thousands and thousands of dollars. And what they did in our judicial system is they gave him a continuance. So now he still won't be on trial. They caught him two years ago. He still won't face trial until January of this next year. And when that decision was made, everybody in the courtroom were like, that scumbag, and they, they got really loud, and like, he deserves justice. And they're all mad and upset. They had to tell people to leave the courtroom. They're so upset because they want justice. You want justice. I want justice. We know that when we've been wronged, we desire justice until we've done wrong. Then I'm not interested in justice anymore. Do you know what I want? I want mercy. But your conscience tells you, the, the law says, don't kill, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal. Jesus amps that up. Don't lust in your heart. Don't be angry without a cause. Love your neighbor. And your conscience says over and over again, guilty, guilty, guilty. Not a plaything. The God of heaven says, guilty. And in his grace and mercy, he says to you today, you turn, you repent. Some of you think you're doing Jesus a favor by showing up in church or being the best you can. No, not only does your conscience say, turn and repent, the cross says, turn and repent. How in the world can you this morning sit here and think that your good works and, and, and your niceness and you keeping some kind of law or rules or doing the best you can so it outweighs the bad in your life is going to get you to heaven when Jesus had to die on a cross? What in the world was that cross for? Why would God impose that on the sun, when it was so horrific that we got a new word out of it, it's called excruciating. It comes from crucifixion. And so if you in your goodness can go to heaven, then God made a grave mistake by putting Christ on the cross and suffering the wrath of God on him. And so God is not fickle. He is kind. And in his warnings, we see kindness. Kindness. And then finally, this morning, God is to be followed. He's to be followed. Everyone there thought that this new snazzy cart 
was a really good idea. It's beautiful, I'm sure. It was new. It was brand new. And so there's a consensus. All the people said, man, it's beautiful. Look at the wheels. Look at the rims. This is fantastic. Look how pretty this looks. They were certainly sincere. They wanted God's presence. They were enthusiastic. But they were disobedient to the clear commands of God. Christian, listen to me. There is no amount of unity, sincerity, or enthusiasm that can compensate for disobedience. And they were disobedient. They knew the clear commands of God, and they decided that they were going to do what they're going to do. This morning, understand that God's work in God's way, God's work has to be done in God's way for God's blessing. There's, there's no other formula here. And just so that you know when I say blessing, I don't mean to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and everything goes your way. That's not what I mean. I mean that in the midst of obeying God, I have a buoyancy, I have a joy, there is a peace that passes all understanding because I know ultimately I am in line with the God of heaven and I'm doing what he's asked me to do. So, no matter my circumstances, how my world falls apart, I still can have peace and joy knowing I am following God and I am richly enjoying his blessings, which, by the way, his ultimate blessing is him. It's him. Your life starts falling apart, you understand it's him. I mean, he's all you have, you understand it's, it's all you need. It's him. But if we do it our way, outside of God's way, it will not end well. He knows that anything outside of his will will not only be dissatisfying, none of it keeps its promise. None of it. Not only will it be dissatisfying, doing it your way, it will be destructive. we got folks today starting churches and changing churches because they think we're going to build the church on personality and entertainment. And I, I got nothing against good music, good songs, none of that. But if you're not going to build the church on the person and work of Jesus Christ, you are not doing it God's way, and you will never build anything of eternal value. When he is lifted up, all men and women will be drawn to him. That's the job of the church. We live our personal lives, living in our flesh. Christian brother or sister, listen to me. You cannot live this Christian life in your flesh. You can't do it. It's impossible. You are banging your head against the wall when you think, I'm just going to do this and that. You need the Spirit of God to yield to Him, to allow Him to live through you. And when you do it your own way, your own thoughts, your own plans, you will, you will mess up everything that touches your life. In our marriages, we keep on doing it our way. We want to be right. We want to always win the argument. We always want to give a reason why, they're, why they are wrong and we're right. It's always about the biggest piece of cake. I want to be first. And you can follow that, and you can feel good about yourself when you win those little battles, but I want to tell you something. You are not doing it God's way. God says to a husband, husband, hey, love her like you love yourself. You selfish, greedy pig. That's an extra thing. I'm not sure that, that's in there. That was just extra. I think that's what Paul was trying to... Because he knows. You know why? We're selfish. You give of yourself. You wash her with the word. You cherish her. You, you give her what she needs to be the woman that God has called her to be. That changes everything. Wife, you respect him. You honor him. And you say, I'm not doing that because I think I write that. Right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. And watch your way destroy any good that you could have in a relationship that glorifies Jesus Christ. Our single folks who are here, you say, I need a man. 
I need a woman. I'm 22. I'm afraid I'm going to be an old maid or an old man. Or I'm 30. And you want to do it your way and compromise your integrity and your purity and the testimony of Christ? Listen to me, sister. Listen, brother. There are things worse than being lonely in this world. And I could tell you story after story of broken hearts and lives because they did it their way and not God's way. Here's the point, Dave. The point is, you've got to do it God's way. Follow him in order to have his blessing. This is a timeless truth, not just for David, but for us. The God of heaven this morning should be feared. And as you know him and love him, you understand how that all works out. It's a great paradox. We love and fear. It, it, it works. It really does work. He ought to be feared. We ought to rejoice this morning that he is not capricious and fickle. He warns and he pleads and he's gracious and he's long-suffering. How, how many of us this morning could testify to, to God's long-suffering in our own lives? We thank him for it. But listen to me. This God knows the beginning from the end. He knows how you were created. He knows what you were created for. He knows how you function. He knows how you flourish. And his way must be followed. And when it's not, there is always, always destruction. So don't be a fool this morning. Some of you are still mad. God, why did you do that to Uzzah? You don't get the point. The point is Uzzah did that to Uzzah. That's the point. And God is reminding David, I am holy, I am righteous, I am to be feared. I'm not capricious. I've given you warnings. You need to follow me. And may we as God's people follow God. He is worthy to be followed. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy of our entire lives. And may we as a people leave this place understanding that's exactly what he wants for us. Let's pray.